It's a Tuesday edition of PFTPM. Minor technical issue. I can't see Shireen. It would be a very good afternoon for Shireen if she can't see me. <laughs> Hello, Shireen. How are you? Hi, I can see you, Mike. You look good in all black today. Now, I have received from f- some feedback, constructive criticism, if you will, some from some folks who don't like the fact that I have mentioned my shower door injury yesterday morning, yesterday afternoon, and this morning. So I'm going to keep the streak alive and mention that I'm still recovering <laughs> from a shower door jamming into my head. And it's possible I didn't get, because I was taking a call while we were getting ready for the show, I possibly did not get the makeup completely on. So you may begin to see the, uh, the little uh, the shiner there. So four straight mentions, and we'll go for five and six tomorrow with PFT Live and PFT PM. How's everything in Texas today? Well, my head's doing much better than yours, apparently, and there will be no blood, hopefully, coming down from my head during the show. By the way, I watched the video that they did of you with the On Her Turf program. That, yeah. that was awesome. And the picture of you in your full uniform, how old were you in that photo? <laughs> I was in the second grade, and that, that was the one they wrote the story on me about being the Cowboys' youngest fan. And in it, I mentioned that my lifelong goal was to cover the Dallas Cowboys. It was to marry Roger Staubach first, but then to cover the Dallas Cowboys. Somehow that worked in my brain. Well, you're 50% toward your yeah. goal, and Roger Staubach is still alive. You could still marry him at some point. It's not impossible. I don't want to cause any trouble with you and your husband. But in theory, in theory, the other half of your seven-year-old goal could still be achieved someday, some way. So I have a feeling you don't have that same goal today that you had when you were seven. Yeah. Probably neither goal, right? Done, done one and don't have that goal for the other one yet. So, yeah, we'll just have achieved to one. some new goals, Mike. That's right. Achieved one. Abandoned the other just through the passage of time and, you know, the fact that you're not seven anymore. But it really is great. It's always yeah. great when someone knows what they want to do at a young age and they, and, they, and they reach the goal. And obviously, and I encourage anyone out there who hasn't seen the video to go watch it, you grew up in the business at a time when there weren't many females covering any male sports and particularly not football. So I admire the fact that you persevered. I admire the vision. I admire the work ethic. I admire everything. Obviously, the, you know, the, the fact that we work together should say plenty, but I just felt like I needed to say that because I thought it was a great piece and I encourage everyone to check it out. Appreciate that, Mike. And NBC did a great job sending the crew down here. Follow me all day for the Giants-Cowboys game. We went to the stadium and they followed me from the house to the stadium and, and all around to post-game interviews. So it was fantastic. Appreciate them doing it. And I, I said to them, thank you for the story and thank you for taking the time to do it because it, it was a long 12 to 14-hour day that they were around me. Well, everyone should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. And uh, we'll probably post a link to it at some point at profootballtalk.com. One of the hot topics at the website today is the status of Baker Mayfield, the first overall pick in the 2018 draft who has dislocated his shoulder twice in a four-week window and the Browns on a short week as they prepare for the Broncos to come to town. Here is Baker Mayfield today talking about the left shoulder injury and whether or not he believes he will play against Denver on Thursday night. Today's better than yesterday, that's for sure. Um, Yeah, just kind of back to the basics, trying to get the inflammation down and 
uh, see where it goes. Just one day at a time. You still expect to play Thursday night? I, I do. I do. You know, obviously, if I was in a physical state where I wasn't able to play to the best of my abilities and I was hurting the team, I, I wouldn't do that because I care about winning and I want to give this team the best position to do that. So I want to be out there. I want to get healthy. I want to do all that. So that, that's, that's just what it's about. I have to make that decision. Only I know how my body feels. Um, and if anyone questions whether, you know, I'm hindering the team and going out there injured, that's just not right. So it's my decision. I get to say, you know, whether I'm able to play or not, and that's just how it is. You kind of lost me with the last point there, Baker, because it's not your decision if you're able to help the team or, or if you're hurting the team because you're not objective in this. And I, I, I love Baker Mayfield's moxie, his confidence. You need to be confident like that to thrive in a professional sporting environment. But, you know, Shereen, there's always the balance. Starter at what below 100% is superseded by backup who is fully healthy. And Case Keenum, who has a history with Kevin Stefanski, Case Keenum, who took the Vikings to the NFC Championship in 2017, at a certain point, Baker Mayfield is hurting the team. And he is not the person who should be deciding whether or not he plays. It's not his birthright to be the starting quarterback of the Cleveland Browns. The team has to act in its best interest, and if the team thinks that Keenum gives them a better chance to win because Mayfield playing injured isn't good for anybody, including Mayfield, then that's a decision someone else has to make, not him. Well, and he lost me the quote before the one you're talking about when he says that the injury has nothing to do with how he's playing. So basically it means he's not playing very well. I mean, because the injury, I think, had something to do with his performance the other day. If it didn't, he's just a really bad quarterback, and maybe he should be benched <laughs> for performance rather than for medical. I mean, really. Oh, no. <laughs> it wasn't You're a right, good performance, though. Mike. It, you, it, it, he has it a wasn't perfect good. excuse. Take the excuse. Yeah. Take the excuse take, for your poor performance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but they, and, and they need better quarterback play. And Case Keenum yeah. can do that, Mike. If, if Baker starts, I guarantee you he's going to be on a short leash. Yeah. Well, and at some point, you have to protect the guy from himself. At some point, you have to protect the team from a yeah. player who believes that he is entitled to continue to play. I admire the willingness. I admire the determination. I admire the raw stubbornness. But at some point, that has to yield to reality. And the reality is... Mayfield hasn't been playing well, and it's a pretty simple choice. Either you're not playing well because you're injured or you're not playing well because you stink. It stinks for the Browns because they're not going to have Nick Chubb. He is out with a calf injury. Kareem Hunt, the other running back to the 1 and 1A, Chubb and Hunt. Hunt is on injured reserve with a calf injury. They got some issues in Cleveland. This game... This is the worst time of the year for them to have that short week game. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the year, and that spotlight has moved to the Browns. Shereen, that spotlight of a cluster of injuries that will test a team's depth and its resolve and its ability to fight through adversity, that spotlight is just going to keep moving around the NFL, and everyone's going to get a piece of it at some point this year. And what do you do when you're in that spot? And, and it's not just injuries. The Cardinals, what they went through this past weekend with all the COVID, and they managed to win. The Raiders, what they're going through with the Gruden dysfunction, dis- departure, and everything else, they found a way to win. Can you find a way to win when you've got all these issues? That's the test for the Browns on Thursday night. 
Yeah, Dearness Johnson's going to make his first start at running back, and he's hardly played any snaps on offense over the last three seasons, but he's going to get his opportunity. The bigger thing that relates to Baker, in my mind, Mike, is the two injured tackles. Jedrick, uh, Jedrick Wills and Jack Conklin are hurt, and who knows how that works out. As Von Miller said today, I don't care who they play at tackle. I'm going to kill the quarterback. So that does <laughs> not bode. That does not. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing there, and it's probably not accurate. But basically, that's what he said. I don't care who's playing tackle. I'm going to get back there. And, and he probably will. He has four and a half sacks this season. He probably will have more after this game, especially if those tackles aren't there. Uh, even if they are, they're not going to be 100%. So this could be a very bad game for Make- Baker Mayfield, Mike, if he starts because he's not going to have much time and he's going to take some hits again on that injured shoulder. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, it's going to be a challenge for the Browns to pull off the victory. The defense has not been good in recent games. 84 points given up over the past two games after only surrendering 13 the two games before that. Short week, and then a little mini buy, and then the Steelers and the Bengals. We're going to learn a lot about the Browns and whether the Browns is the Browns all over again this year. It's disappointing to see them at 3-3. Three and three. They are far below their expectations. Twice now in the last three years, they've come into a season with high expectations. In 2019, they failed to live up to them, and this year so far they are failing to live up to the expectation that they wouldn't just be a playoff team, that they would be a Super Bowl contender in the AFC. And, you know, the subtext to all of this, and it dovetails with the topic we're going to discuss next, the subtext to all of this with Mayfield is when and if they'll give him a major second contract. They haven't yet. I think his desire to prove himself and to earn that money is one of the things that's pushing him to keep playing because he wants to show he's, he's got the Iron Man tendency and he's going to suit up every week and he's going to play well every week and he earns that money. The cautionary tale is out there from other quarterbacks who were taken high in the draft and got big contracts. Shireen, this is is in the balance right now. And I'm not going to be surprised if the Browns have a different quarterback in a couple years, the way this is currently going for Mayfield. Well, and Mike, you've talked all along about what the Browns should do. Baker hasn't proved himself this year as they thought he would. What do you do with Baker Mayfield now? You certainly don't give him a contract, do you, going into next year? I think you wait, and I think that you, uh, you you definitely wait. And he'll be franchised. Well, no, next year's the option year, and then franchise tag after that. Right. And that's when you get into the dangerous game, the Kirk Cousins game, the Dak Prescott game, and he could come out and play really well, and then he gets stubborn, and he decides to push his way to the open market. But he's going to have to prove a lot to get the kind of money on the open market that he may want from the Browns. So. Look, the Browns need to view the quarterback position the same way they view every other position. They are very numbers-driven, very analytics-driven, and they have to ask themselves, what does Mayfield want, and how much will it cost us to get a replacement who would be as good, possibly better, than Baker Mayfield? And they've got the rest of the infrastructure in place. You know, as Aaron Rodgers is looking around for teams for 2022, just to name one, or, or, or Russell Wilson, who was born in Ohio, by the way, could be looking around for a place where he thinks he can have the career that would make him, as he puts it, legendary and iconic. The Browns right now, beyond the quarterback position, have a hell of a lot better team, position by position, player by player, than the Seattle Seahawks. So they they could be an attractive destination next year for one of these veterans thinking, I want to go somewhere and have a Tom Brady 
kind of an outcome, and Baker Mayfield could be the Jameis Winston who ends up thrown overboard. It could be next year or the year after. But And, and I know Baker Mayfield is not going to like that talk, but you know what? One way to stop that talk is, quite simply, play better. to play better. It's on you. It's just like, you know, when we talked about Tua before the season, and it's still continuing, if Tua doesn't like the Deshaun Watson talk, play better. If any quarterback out there doesn't like chatter about someone else possibly taking their job, play better. And that leads to our next topic, because Jared Goff did not play better, did not play well enough for the Los Angeles Rams. It's Goff week for the Rams. Jared's coming home, and I don't think the Rams are very scared at that prospect, if he even is the starter on Sunday, because it sounds like Lions coach Dan Campbell is thinking about yanking Goff from the lineup and going with David Blau. Here is Sean McVay talking recently about how the Goff Goff trade went down and whether and to what extent he has any regrets about it. You said, you know, do I think that the way that it unfolded was totally different than anybody anticipated? Yes. Could I have handled it better in terms of, hey, if there's a possibility of it, let's get ahead, even if you're out of town, yada, yada, yada. So to answer your question, Gary, yes. I wish that there was better, clear communication. You don't want to catch guys off guard. It came together a lot faster than anybody anticipated. Um, but, yeah, of course. I, I think that, you you know, anytime that tough decisions and things like that where people are affected – you always want to be as understanding, as empathetic as possible. Think about it through the other person's lens. And there's certainly things that, uh, you know, I know I, I, I would do it a little bit differently um, if I, uh, you know, when those situations arise in the future. But I think Jared knows the respect that I have for him. I feel very good about the dialogue that we were able to have, um, you know, before he had gone to Detroit. He knows the appreciation that we as an organization that I have as a coach for all the good things that he did here. but. To say that it was perfectly handled on my end, I, I wouldn't be totally accurate in that. But uh, I'll never claim to be perfect, but I will try to learn from some things that I can do better. And I think that was one of them, without a doubt. Yeah, here's one thing you can do better, not pay Jared Goff. And this is a drum that I will constantly yeah. bang because I was banging the drum in advance. Hindsight's twenty twenty. This is one of the rare occasions, Shireen, when I had foresight. And I was saying, do not sign Jared Goff to a second contract. This was after Super Bowl 53. This was after he missed Brandon Cooks twice. Well, he misread the play in the first half of the Super Bowl and didn't see Cooks wide open. And then in the second half, they ran the same damn play and Cooks was wide open again and Goff saw him too late and then he threw an inaccurate ball and one of the McCourty twins got over to break it up. I think it was Devin. It may have been Jason. Actually, I think it was Jason. It may have been Devin. Either way, somebody ran over with the last name of McCourty and broke up that play. So that was when I started to think, you know what? This cycle of the next guy up for a contract gets a little bit more than the last guy. And then the next quarterback up for a contract gets a little bit more than the next guy. That can't continue. At some point, that's got to end. And it should have ended with Jared Goff. And frankly, it should have ended with Carson Wentz. But it definitely Carson should have Wentz. ended with Goff to the point where, you know, when I was saying it, I think it was Fred Rogan with the NBC affiliate in L.A. So I guess I should be nice since we're all in the same broader family. But, you know, he was calling me out. I was on his radio show and we kind of went at it a little bit and I was not yielding in my position. And guess what, Fred? I was right, baby. How you like that, Fred? I was right. I should be more tactful. Well, and the well, the Rams were lucky, Mike, to get out of that contract. They had to give the first round draft pick to do it. But 
They were lucky that they found a trade partner. Oh, by the way, the new GM of the Lions used to be with the Rams. Let's see what we can do here, and we can end up with Matthew Stafford too. So they were lucky to get out of that contract. They are out of it now, but they should never have paid Jared Goff $33.5 million per year, I think it was. And they just shouldn't have done it. He didn't prove that he was worth that contract. And let that be a lesson to the Cleveland Browns. They need to not do the second contract for Baker Mayfield yet until he proves he is that guy. Yeah, and, you know, fans get so nutty about their starting quarterback and they feel protective they take ownership just ask the Dolphins fans who are in the Tua Mafia now plenty of Dolphins fans have have broken themselves out of that spell (laughs) but with the Browns yeah with the Browns at some point if you're a Browns fan you got to say maybe we can do better here maybe we can do better you know, you ask the average Browns fan for next year, would you rather have Baker Mayfield or Russell Wilson? 99.9% of them are going to say Russell Wilson, Baker Mayfield or Aaron Rodgers, Baker Mayfield or Deshaun Watson. Not that Watson has shown any inclination to play for the Browns, but the point is Mayfield has not played so well that that he should be presumed to be entrenched for the next five, seven, or ten years, like Josh Allen in Buffalo or Lamar Jackson in Baltimore and uh, Goff, Goff is on borrowed time in Detroit, and you know, yeah. I, there's there's got to be a story behind the story here. I don't know if Brad Holmes felt some sort of loyalty to the Rams for helping him position himself to be a GM. I don't think he's going to make a decision that would not be in the team's best interest, though, just to help the Rams out of a jam. It did give them a path out of Matthew Stafford. It did give the Lions two first-round picks and a third-round pick, and it did allow the Rams to tuck Goff into that package and not make it as obvious as it was when the Texans sent Brock Osweiler plus a second-round pick to the Browns in 2017. But the, the Lions knew what they were getting. We talked about that yesterday. They knew what they were getting in Jared Goff, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that they're already thinking about putting Goff on the bench. No, it really shouldn't, Mike. And their quarterback of the future is not on the roster now. It's going to be who they draft next season. And we talk about all the teams that passed up on Justin Herbert, and I realized at the time they had Matthew Stafford, but they could have had Justin Herbert. And you can go back, I know, in a million drafts and look at that, but frankly, that's, that's where they should be right now. They would have a young quarterback, and they could have traded Matthew Stafford and moved on at that time. They didn't do that, so now they're going to be in the market for a quarterback in the offseason their rebuilding team. This is going to take a while. Lions fans are sick of hearing that, and I get it. It's been so long. They've changed coaches. They've changed GMs. They've changed now quarterbacks, and and they can't get it right, and there's frustration there, and I understand that completely. They, They need to do better in Detroit, and I do think they have the right coach and possibly the right GM, but they're going to get a chance to prove the right GM in the offseason with who they pick up at quarterback, and can he be the guy that they hope that he is with that high pick, probably a number one overall pick. Um, and, and they had that number one overall pick in 2009 in Matthew Stafford, and they had him for 12 years, and now he's flourishing with the Los Angeles Rams. Maybe it is the curse of Bobby Lane. Maybe they just need to sell the team. I don't, I don't know. I like what Dan Campbell's doing. We had plenty of fun with the whole kneecap-biting thing. Yeah. I love the emotion. I love the passion. I still believe Chris Spielman has a very strong influence on shaping the new culture there. Yeah. It's going to take some time to take root. That's the problem. When you have 
a team that can't find its way. And you're bouncing around from experiment to experiment. We're going to try it this way. Well, that's not going to work. So we're trying it this way. We're making a dramatic change. and They don't give it enough time to work. And then we're going to try this. At some point, they have to give it enough time to work. And they have to hope that they can get some results before ownership runs out of patience. And hopefully Dan Campbell and Chris Spielman and Brad Holmes will get enough time to find the kind of players that, that will help the Lions become what the team envisions. Old school, throwback, physical, tough. And Goff, I, I, I don't think a Goff, if I was going to make a list of quarterbacks that would fit within that old school, throwback, tough, physical mindset, it wouldn't be Goff. So I just think it's a matter of time before they move on yeah. from Goff, Shireen. Actually, I think Baker Mayfield would fit the Lions better than Goff. <laughs> yeah, he probably would. He fits their mentality, no question about it. But this may be the last week we see Jared Goff, Mike, if they don't get better results. And who would expect them to get better results out of the quarterback position than what they've gotten so far? He's had one 300-yard game, seven touchdowns, four interceptions. Again, he hasn't been good enough for them to win games. And I know the roster is doesn't have a ton of players on it, a ton of playmakers. I, I get all that. But you know what? Matthew Stafford consistently got the most out of what he could get out of the Detroit Lions when he was there. They need better quarterback play to, to, and then build around your quarterback to make that team better. But that's where it's got to start. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they play the Rams this week, by the way. We already mentioned that, but it's worth underscoring. The Rams, who know Goff, who know his strengths, who know his weaknesses, and are going to know how to confuse, befuddle, intercept, force him to fumble, all the things that they didn't like about Goff that got them to unload him. They get a chance to exploit them this weekend. All right, uh, before we wrap up this first segment, there's some news as it relates to the Washington football team investigation. And we're at a point where the story is in danger of dying on the vine because it needs more stuff, more news more developments, because you get to a point where there's nothing more to say. You get to a point where we can't come on here every day and say, hey, they need to release the emails. Well, unless there's you know, somebody with more power than us, somebody who officially takes action, it's not a story. Unless there's another development, another disclosure, another piece of reporting, there's nothing to discuss. I got something to discuss. And you know what? I also got some more that maybe we'll be discussing Tomorrow, I want to give the NFL a chance to chime in before I report it, but I picked up a couple of things before the show that I'm very intrigued by, but I want to be fair to the NFL and give them a chance to respond, chime in, whatever. But this is what the NFL told me earlier today, because I was trying to find out two things. And I haven't reported this yet at PFT, Shereen, so I guess this is the first time that we're disclosing it. I wanted to know, did they look at emails only or text messages as well as part of the workplace investigation that resulted in the Gruden emails, the Jeff Pash emails, all of the emails to and from Bruce Allen. And also, how did they determine the 650,000? Where did those come from? Like how, how, what, what, because that you can't, you can't have only 650,000 emails for an entire organization over a 10 year period. The number is going to be a lot higher than that. So where did that subset come from? So I got two answers. One, it was just emails, not text messages. And frankly, you know, the way people communicate, I think they're a little bit looser with text messages than with emails. So I don't know why they didn't look at text messages as well. But secondly, the NFL told me the 650,000 emails that they looked at 
all came from emails sent to or by former team president Bruce Allen. And also, these were emails that fell outside the scope of the workplace culture investigation that the Washington football team was investigating. Now, we did the math. It works out to, for a guy who was with the team for just about 10 years to the day, 650,000 emails over 10 years is roughly 178 sent and received every single day for 10 years. So if we believe what the NFL is saying, and this is a statement from the NFL, this isn't the game the AP played the other night where they said unnamed sources, there's no other troubling information. The NFL told me, Brian McCarthy, NFL spokesman, told me 650,000 emails sent to and from Bruce Allen. That's 178 a day, and there's plenty of people calling BS on that suggestion, which would, I guess, mean that the emails have other people involved, not just Bruce Allen. Yeah, I guess so. But I, this doesn't. This sounds like a flimsy investigation to me as well, Mike. I mean, is that the only emails they looked at were Bruce Allen's and no text messages? And by the way, no written report. I mean, this thing just gets screwier by the day that information keeps coming out. This is just, it's crazy to me what this investigation entailed. And I guess we'll never know exactly what was looked at, right? Well, we won't unless and until others with actual power and ability to force the NFL and or the Washington football team to disclose the information gets involved. I mean, you know, the, the position they have taken all along when it comes to keeping this stuff hidden, all the way back to July 1. Remember they had a conference call on July 1. Lisa Friel was involved. I remember we got the announcement that Lisa Friel was conducting a conference call. The last thing I thought it had to do with was the Washington football team because she wasn't involved in it. Beth Wilkinson was hired to do the investigation. Lisa Friel does the conference call. Jeff Pash is on the line but not really involved. And one of the talking points that Friel recited was this idea that they're not sharing any specific information because some of the current or former employees who came forward and provided information to Beth Wilkinson as part of the investigation wanted confidentiality. Well, they still aren't familiar with the concept of redaction. There are ways to protect people's identity and still communicate to the world the concerns that were raised. But if they're going to say these 650,000 emails all fall beyond the scope of the workplace misconduct investigation. It's not an issue. It's two different worlds. Hey, we're keeping everything related to the workplace misconduct investigation confidential out of respect for the people who asked for secrecy. Fine. You got 650,000 emails that fall beyond the scope of it that were sent to or from Bruce Allen. The concern isn't there. So the reason they're giving for not giving us anything by their own admission, doesn't apply to these 650,000 emails, Shireen. Well, and I'm confused. How do workplace emails sent from a workplace email received to a workplace email fall outside the scope of an investigation of a workplace culture? That None of this makes sense to me, like none of it. So this is just crazy, and I don't know where this ends up. I don't know if we have more of these leaked. I don't know if people quietly go away and resign because these emails have privately been sent to them and said, this is what we have. We're going to leak these. If you don't resign, as you've said, Mike, I don't, this is crazy. If they fall outside of that, they absolutely should be released. And my guess is that when they say that, what they mean is that there's nothing in any of these emails that would 
reflect or constitute communications right. with employees of the Washington football team. Maybe these were all external. Emails sent to and from John Gruden. Emails sent to and from Jeff Pash. Emails sent to and from other people that Bruce Allen interacted with, with his WashingtonFootballTeam.com account. So I think that's what it means. You know, and, and I look at it this way. And I investigated cases like this on behalf of employers. I handled cases like this on behalf of employees who eventually filed suit. When it comes to direct misconduct, direct mistreatment, you're not rarely going to have somebody who is stupid enough to browbeat an employee in writing. That usually happens verbally or face-to-face. You're not going to have a paper trail there. So there probably aren't many emails that would reflect misconduct directed at employees or discussions among managers about specific employees. But either way, these 650,000 fall beyond the scope of the investigation, and they nevertheless rely upon the confidentiality of the investigation as a basis for not releasing them. And, again, I, I'm st- look, I, I am committed to getting to the truth here, no matter what. And NBC has been very supportive about it. And, I, you know, different people have reached out to me and said, oh, hey, you're going you're to get yourself on, you know, the endangered species list. Not physically, I hope, but, you know, just you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we, we, there, there's clearly something going on here. And the NFL prefers yeah. to run out the clock and everyone move on. Hey, we got a game tonight in prime time. It's an exciting football game. Tune in and watch it. Please no, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, we're paying all the attention we can to the man behind the curtain because we want to find out what the hell's going on back there. And uh, um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to yield. I refuse to yield, Shireen. Well, one more question to you, Mike, on this. So we've talked about the emails don't fall into that. There was a picture of cheerleaders circulated from, right, Bruce Allen to John Gruden. Wouldn't that fall into the workplace culture that they were investigating? Uh, Well, yes, I think it potentially would. And uh, it shows the attitude. It shows the the mindset. It shows the, the, the manner in which these photographs were used by the guy who was the president of the team so yeah i I, look i'm willing to accept them at their word that these documents aren't part of the workplace misconduct investigation because it makes the argument stronger that they should be released but they clearly show the poison the toxic nature everything else that's negative about what was going on with the team so it's another reason to release them all right let's take a break we got take your pick Coming up when PFTPM continues. Also, week six awards with MDS a little bit later. We'll be back with more PFTPM here on Peacock right after this. All right. There is Ronnie Stanley's statement that was posted earlier today by the Baltimore Ravens. He broke an ankle last year right after he signed a long-term contract. So good for him to get the financial certainty before the serious injury. Tried to come back this year, had some issues week one, hasn't played since then, is now having surgery again on that ankle in the hopes of coming back fully healthy for 2022. Kudos to him, though, for getting the long-term protection before the injury issue arose because if he didn't, he wouldn't have gotten the financial package on the back end. Here's Coach John Harbaugh uh, addressing a guy who has yet to get the financial protection that he deserves, Lamar Jackson, and how Jackson is shutting up the quote-unquote haters. I don't think once somebody does something, some X and O idea, 
all of a sudden that's the answer. And we've kind of been saying that for three years now. There is no, there is no answer. You know, you've got to play well. You've got to execute. And so it's our players executing against their players within the structure of whatever they're doing and we're doing. And whoever executes better and makes plays really in the end is going to, is going to win. And, uh, you know, when we play well, we're doing that. When we don't play well, we're not doing that. And it's less about figuring somebody out. So I do think if, if you're looking for your headline here, you know, I do think that people who make those statements are, are kind of, you know, whistling in the, in the graveyard just a little bit. You know, it doesn't have any meaning. I've said that before. You know, anybody that knows X and O's would just kind of roll their eyes when they hear something like that. And, and look, you know, I'm surprised this narrative is still a thing. Lamar Jackson yeah. is uh, one of the most exciting players in the NFL. He has proven time and again that he can do it. He proved last Monday night he can win with his arm. He can win with his legs. He wins with his leadership. He wins with his tenacity. He wins with his attitude. He's an MVP from 2019, and he's on the short list for MVPs again this year as the Ravens begin to climb. Uh, and they're performing. That win over the Chargers reminded me of the way they performed in 2019 when they hit their groove and just started blowing people out. Yeah, no question, Mike. And I, one of the questions we have is who's been the most fun to watch? And, it, and it's Lamar Jackson for me just because of what he's done with, their, with his arm this year. They were ranked 32nd in passing yards. They lost all those running backs before the season even started. And it's been on Lamar Jackson, and he's performed. And he deserves that second contract. Yeah, and while we're there, we're doing Take Your Pick, and you've already made your pick. I'll, I'll pivot to that one, the most exciting player to watch. I agree with you on Jackson. The other one is my guy, Kyler. Kyler Murray is always exciting to watch. The Cardinals are extremely fun. They're incredibly talented, and I give them a ton of credit for winning and winning and winning, going into Cleveland this past weekend and getting another victory. They should beat the Texans this weekend to get to 7-0. and Then they got the short week with the Green Bay Packers. What a game next Thursday night. See, there are games that are great, and you know they're great when you go into the season, like Bucks at Patriots. And then there are the games that become great based upon how the season goes. And Cardinals-Packers next Thursday night, oh, wow, should that be a great one. And uh, Kyler Murray is the reason why it will be a great one because he is so much fun to watch, Arena. Yeah, and I'm going to pivot off of that to, to last Sunday. We saw one of the great games, possibly the best game all year, of New England and Dallas. And I almost put in this category a defensive player, Trevon Diggs. But the problem with Trevon Diggs, I can't believe people are still throwing at him. Seven picks already, one at least one in each game so far. But eventually you would think that they would look away from him and not give him those chances but he, he has been darn exciting to watch, and he was a big reason that it was exciting to watch that New England-Dallas game, and it's going to be exciting to watch Kyler Murray go against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers next week. All right, uh, back to the take-your-pick categories. Who has shut down the critics so far this season? Well, I'm going to go with Matthew Stafford, and maybe it was just me who had doubts, but I had doubts how this would work out simply because one Pro Bowl, we've talked about everybody in the NFL makes Pro Bowls. Matthew Stafford's made one Pro Bowl despite all those 5,000-yard passing teams that he, the years that he had and 0-3 in the postseason. But he has really done exactly what the Rams wanted him to do. They wanted to throw the ball down the field. He's second in the NFL to Russell Wilson, 9.19 average gain. He's been really good, Mike, so far. Now he's got a win in the postseason, something that he has yet to do. 
Yeah, and I was was right there with you, Shereen. I had doubts about Stafford. I needed to see it. I didn't know whether it was him or whether it was the Lions. Just like with the Rams, is it the Rams? Is it Goff? What's the reason that there was a ceiling on how far these teams went? And Stafford has been phenomenal, and uh, a lot of people eating some crow on that, and I'll take a big helping of it. For me, and this one is kind of funny because Jamar Chase created the criticism by dropping so many passes in the preseason and then offering up the clunky explanation that the NFL football is more difficult to catch than the college ball. And you hear people mention that derisively now without pointing out he's the one who said it. He said it. He's the one who was dropping passes. And so when you come out and fuel the own narrative about yourself and others notice that you've done it, it doesn't make them haters. They're just saying, well, this guy is acknowledging that he can't get it done. And I give him credit for finding a path out of that mess, becoming one of the great young receivers in the league, becoming one of the best rookie receivers we've seen. He's averaging 20 yards plus per catch. He's second all-time for receiving yards in his first six games of his career behind only Anquan Bolden in 2003. So he has shut down the critics but he also was the one who lit the fuse on the criticism. Yeah, no question about it, Mike. It was all those drops, and then he brought up why he was making all those drops, and that created that narrative for him. But he's played awfully well since the season started. Favorite for Offensive Rookie of the Year, I know it's early, but usually we're talking about a quarterback. None of those quarterbacks have been great enough that we're talking about them in the conversation. He could run away with this award the way he's playing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, one more topic before we take a break. Who has proven this year that they deserve the criticism that they previously received? Well, I'm going to go with Jimmy Garoppolo, and it, we talked about the injuries, and that's the reason they drafted Trey Lance, and here he is, more injuries this season, injured again. 2019 is the only season that he was able to stay fully healthy, and we know what he did that season, but five, intercept, five touchdowns, two interceptions this season. He's 19th, 19th in pass rating. We see why they drafted Trey Lance. We see why Trey Lance is the future for this team. Not Jimmy Garoppolo. His future is going to be elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think he ends up on the bench as soon as Trey Lance gets an opportunity to play well enough to win over the locker room because it's the locker room being behind Jimmy Garoppolo that has saved Jimmy Garoppolo so far. I I hate to keep picking on Jared Goff, so that's a given. He's proven he deserves the criticism, but I'm going to go with the guy who was drafted one pick after him as well, Carson Wentz. And the criticism that is merited and deserved is the the criticism that crystallized for me early in the year when we saw Wentz get dragged down by Aaron Donald you know a guy isn't injury prone a guy is prone to doing things that will get him injured and that's what Carson Wentz does he tries too hard to extend plays he holds on to the ball for too long he wants to make that great play instead of tapping out he needs to learn to tap out and maybe he's starting to learn that I don't know But that part of the criticism, the fact that he's always injured, that is not just a fluke. That is his playing style. He needs to change his playing style if he wants to be as effective as he can be. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Week 6 awards with MDS when this Tuesday edition of PFT PM continues right after this. Pressure's on me to play well. I will play well. 
I don't know who the tackle is and I'm going against, but I'm, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. And the other guy, too, on the other side, and I'm, and I'm going to play extremely well, and I'm going to make plays for my team. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to set us up to, to win this game for sure. Vaughn Miller, very optimistic about facing a Browns team that is missing both of their starting tackles and also have plenty of other injury issues. So he called a shot. He's going to kill him, and we assume that he does not mean literally. MDS is with us now with a fantastic jersey in the background. Tell us what the jersey is, and then start us off with your Offensive Player of the Week. It is the jersey that I wore at Cary Grove High School in Cary, Illinois, during the 1994 high school football season. We only went four and five. It was not a great year. Uh, but, you know, my, my a team that is looking like they may be better than my senior year in high school football team was the Raiders, who actually played well. And my pick for the offensive player of the week is Derek Carr. He had a big, big game on Sunday against the Broncos, one of the best games he's played, I think, all things considered. 341 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. I kept thinking as I was watching this game, I think Carr may be better off without John Gruden. And although the two of them always said publicly that they were completely aligned, I always got a little bit of a sense that Gruden would have moved on from Carr the moment he could find a better quarterback. And Carr knew Gruden would move on from him if he could find a better quarterback. And then maybe the two of them were actually not as closely aligned as they liked to say they were publicly. And I actually think that that Carr might be a more confident player without Gruden. I think it's just going to be fascinating to see the rest of this season. I mean, there's a million angles. We we hardly even talk about the on-field because there's so much off-field with what's happening with the Raiders. But on the field, I can't help but wonder if – Derek Carr isn't going to prove to be a better quarterback without John Gruden. Not many teams have Derek Henry's number, but the Bills did have his number. In 2018, he had 56 yards rushing. 2019, 78 yards rushing. In 2020, 57 yards rushing. And the Bills won two of those three games. But a loss. Derrick Henry was Derrick Henry last night, Mike. 20 carries, 143 yards, and three touchdowns. He dominated that game. He was the difference in that game. And I think we should start talking about him as an MVP candidate if the Titans can continue to win because Derek, reason, Derek Henry is the reason they, when they win, why they win. And we need to be appreciating Derrick Henry for the greatness yeah. that he demonstrates each and every week. He is this decade's Adrian Peterson, and there was a lot more excitement yeah about Adrian Peterson than there is about Derrick Henry. And I don't get it. Maybe it's because he plays for a team that that still doesn't fully register on the radar screen the way it should. But it should. It should. And Derrick Henry at times is just flat out unstoppable. When he busted through the line last night and they act like, well, but he could go all the way. No, he is going all the way. And he can run as far as he wants, as long as he wants. And nobody is catching him. He is gone. And that combination of speed and size and strength is rare. And we need to appreciate it while he's still doing it. Jonathan Taylor, a guy we need to appreciate who's just getting his career started. Second-year tailback for the Colts. 145 rushing yards and two touchdowns. My offensive player of the week. And I just think it was impressive that the Colts, after having their hearts ripped out and shown to them 
against the Ravens on Monday night. Short week, got it together, got down to business. Yeah, they were playing the Texans. But until the Texans are relegated to the CFL or the XFL, they're still in the NFL, and they're still capable of beating you any given week. I I was impressed by what the Colts did, and I'm impressed by Jonathan Taylor. Defensive player of the week time, MDS, who do you have? T.J. Watt made the game-changing force fumble in overtime, but even before that, I thought he was having an outstanding game. He just showed so much quickness and power coming out of his stance. Play after play really led the Steelers, I thought. And, and I have serious doubts about Ben Roethlisberger's ability to lead the Steelers to many wins this season. But maybe Watt and the defense can win enough low-scoring defensive games to get the Steelers to the playoffs Maybe some cold, bad weather games. Roethlisberger doesn't hold them back too much on offense, and that defense can can maybe do something in January, and I think T.J. Watt is the biggest reason for that. We don't mention Max Crosby very much when we talk about the top edge rushers, but maybe we should. Three sacks, ten pressures versus Teddy Bridgewater and the Broncos. He's been terrific putting pressure on the quarterback this season, Mike. Six six tackles and a pass defense as well. Yeah, and uh, I'm going with a guy who's a great story, and I love to see the guys who have had detours to their careers due to substance abuse issues that I frankly believe the NFL should not be in the business of policing ever. They're not PEDs. It's uh, When you're talking about marijuana, it's a substance that's legal in more and more states all the time. Randy Gregory getting his career back on track. The, the folks at PFF rated him the Defensive Player of the Week under their analytical model. I rate him the Defensive Player of the Week because of this hit right here. Holy crap. I didn't think Mac Jones was getting up. And I told Chris Sims earlier today, I really did fear that Jones was going to have a ruptured spleen like Sims did, because that's the kind of hit that Sims took the day in September 2006 when he ended up with a ruptured spleen and nearly dying on the field. And I was paying close attention to Mac Jones after that, because that hit from Gregory that will strike fear in all quarterbacks who are getting ready to play the Cowboys, because they're not going to want to get hit like that. They're going to be watching for Randy Gregory. That was a powerful statement by him. Rookie of the week time, MDS. Khalil Herbert is a sixth-round rookie running back for the Bears, and with the Bears' top two running backs, David Montgomery and Damian Williams both out, Herbert stepped in with 19 carries for 97 yards and a touchdown. I've said it before, if you're going to draft a running back, the time to do it is the third day of the draft. We've seen it time and again that these late-round running backs like Herbert can produce very well when called upon. And and you see it there against the Packers. He he had a very good game. The Bears offense didn't have a lot going, but I thought the best player they had was the sixth-round rookie, Khalil Herbert. Congratulations to Trevor Lawrence. He gets his first win. The Jaguars end their 20-game losing streak. Do it against the Dolphins. 319 yards and a touchdown for Trevor. But, Mike, you talked to Trevor Lawrence after that game. It was that nine-yard pass that left one second on the clock that set up the field goal that really got it done for the Jaguars. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it it was great to see how that unfolded. Not great for the Dolphins, though, who called the timeout that allowed the Jaguars to change their minds. For me, it's Jamar Chase. And we talked about him in the last segment, so I'm not going to spend too much time other than saying the guy is great. He had another great week. He is now the second highest yardage generator as a rookie through six games behind Anquan Bolden. And he's just showing up every single week and getting it done. Real quickly, MDS Coach of the Week. 
Chase's his coach, Zach Taylor, has that Bengals offense humming right now. I was a little skeptical of Taylor heading into this season, but I'm starting to think this Bengals team may just be headed to the playoffs, and Zach Taylor has that offense playing just the way he wants it. The Cardinals and Raiders faced huge adversity going into last week's game. Rich Passaccia, I go way back with him, did a great job with the Raiders. I think he has a chance to lead this team to the postseason. It's a job he's always wanted. If he does well in this job, maybe he gets a full-time job. You know, every time they cut to Mike Vrabel last night, he looked like he just wanted to leave. Like, this night is not going to go my way. He looked exasperated, but he held it together early and forced the Bills to take field goals instead of touchdowns. And they they hung around long enough to make it a game. It became an exciting game. And then on that fateful fourth and short, the, the, the shift that pulled the defensive line together just in time for Josh Allen to walk up to the line of scrimmage and try that sneak. And I, I've watched that 50 times. I think when Josh Allen is trying to sell the Titans' defense that he actually was just like communicating with his linemen, he didn't notice the shift to pinch to the middle to guard against the sneak, and he ran right into the teeth of the defense. Vrabel held firm. Vrabel held off the bills and got a much-needed win to 4-2. and two. All right, we'll take a much-needed break. We'll be back to wrap up this Tuesday edition of PFTPM right after this. All right, let's rip through the mailbag and get in as many as we can before we're out of time. BIJ703 asks, could Derrick Henry be the MVP this year, Shireen? Well, the last time it happened was 2012 with Adrian Peterson. He was the last non-quarterback to win the MVP award. I think he's got a shot, Mike, but it's going to take the Titans winning a lot of games like they did Monday night against the other AFC contenders. And it's going to take Derrick Henry continuing to perform like he has. Six games in, 11 to go. He's on pace for 2,283 rushing yards. That would be a record. I know there'd be an asterisk because there's an extra game, but you know what? Nobody said there should be an asterisk on Eric Dickerson when he got to O.J. Simpson's record with 16, and Simpson did it in 14. Larry Monahan, a.k.a. at Monahan, Larry, is anybody going to sign Cam Newton? Shereen, what do you think? I think it's going to take an injury to a starter where he goes in thinking he gets the rest of the season to prove himself, Mike. We don't have that yet. I do think it happens at some point, though. Yeah, I agree with you, but it has to take a need for another quarterback for the full year. He's not going to be the number two. It's not going to work. They're not going to pay him to be the number two. And uh, it's just a matter of waiting for that moment when a starter is gone for the year and the team deciding not to say we're just going to go next man up. I'm going to skip ahead to Uncle Phil. The Giants have gotten off to another bad start. They're 1-5, and and they got embarrassed at home on Sunday by the Rams. Is it time to tear up the current blueprint? Because obviously the one they're using is not working. By the way, Daniel Jones on Saturday night was referred to on SNL Weekend Update as a scarecrow attached to a Roomba, and he played like it the next day. (laughs) Yeah, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Mike. I do think Gettleman and Judge both are gone after this season. I think they're connected. I think you've got to start over with both of them gone, not just bring back Joe, Joe Judge, even though I think he's done an okay job so far. The problem in New York isn't the coach, isn't the GM, isn't the quarterback. The ultimate problem, the common thread, is the guy that can't be fired. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it's true. John Mara needs to butt out because John Mara is way more involved 
in, in the football operation than he would ever admit. He needs to stand down and let someone else take over because he's the reason, I think, that they've been so bad lately. That's it for today on that happy note. Everybody enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow.